Uh, this morning we're in Acts chapter 27, beginning in verse 33. I'm going to have Kevin Brown come on up and read. Why don't you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're in Acts chapter 27. Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking in a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought to safety to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had, begun, it had began to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he, though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also greatly honored us, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. That's all. You may be seated. Thanks, Kevin. Interesting little story there. So today's message is entitled The Shipwreck. And our, uh, our theme for today is You Will Be My Witnesses. Now, if you were here back in October, we had a special speaker come and preach during our Mission Focus uh, weekend. His name was Nick Ringer. He was from Community Warehouse in Milwaukee. And he spoke to us uh, from this passage detailing Paul's shipwreck. And the theme of his message was uh, You Will Be My Witnesses. And so I'm stealing some of his thunder. Uh, he set me up really well for this particular passage. But he took us back to the first uh, chapter in Acts. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 1, and in that verse, Luke quotes Jesus when he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And Luke, through the book of Acts, uh, traces the, how the gospel did indeed uh, go from Jerusalem and on to Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And these last two chapters in Acts, I know we're coming to the last two chapters in Acts. you believe it? It's been over a year, so you've, you've hung with me. It's really good. But we're getting to the last two chapters, and these last two chapters are like an exclamation point uh, to that sentence, to the ends of the earth. Paul, with the gospel message on his lips, uh, literally was taken to the ends of the earth, a little island out in the middle of the Mediterranean, populated by barbarians, and there Paul lived and witnessed about the saving grace of Jesus. So Nick, back in October, pointed out something quite profound, though, from, uh, from this passage as he uh, we read through Jesus' promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we don't question that promise, right? We know that when we place our faith in Jesus, that his Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, securing us in the family of God as children of the Father. We trust that this is true. And Nick said, we don't have conferences about this. It's like, we know it's true and we do that, right? It's a given. But then Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to say that because we will receive this power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, he says, you will be my witnesses. And that is a promise too, just as much as the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So we will be his witnesses. And Nick said this statement is one that we build conferences around. Like, we will go be his witnesses, right? And we, we build conferences around that. And we have strategies and plans. And why is that? They're both in the same sentence. They are both promises of God fulfilled by the Spirit of God. A few months ago, I mentioned that many things in God's Word that he says uh, are both a promise and a command at the same time. They are commands in the sense that they are things that, uh, which God says will happen and they happen. He says, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit does come upon us and we will be his witnesses. It's a command and it's a promise at the same time. Just like in the creation when God said, let there be light, it was both a command and it was a promise that there would always be light. And because Jesus commanded and he promised it, it happens. We receive power, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we are his witnesses. And this account of Paul's shipwreck demonstrates that what God promised and what God commanded came to pass. In Paul's life, in the life of the early church, and it will happen in your life as well. So we pick up the account with Paul and the shipmates being lost at sea for 14 days, and we, we, we recounted this last a week that nothing was going right for them. It was a terrible situation. Every last one of these people were wet and cold and seasick and hungry and thirsty and traumatized and hopeless. There was no end in sight. It continued to rain and storm and lightning and thunder, and it was extremely windy. Everyone, got, or everyone had lost hope of being saved, it said. Everyone was down to simply survival mode. The guards were actually ready to kill the prisoners so that they did not escape, verse 42. Crewmen were trying to steal lifeboats and get away from the cursed ship, verse 30. Morale was at an all-time low. The people were living in constant state of fear, stress, trauma for over two weeks. That takes a toll on people when you're in that situation. And look at what Paul does in this situation. Paul was just as, trauma, as traumatized, just as stressed out, just as tired, as hungry, just as sick and soaked to the bone as everyone else. And yet he continued to be a witness, even when being a witness seemed like the last thing that needed to be done or the least helpful thing in the moment, at least from a human point of view. 
from our human vantage point in our assessment, it seems that there could be so many other things that Paul could be doing or should have been doing. Paul was witnessing about Jesus and turning people's attention to God. I want you to put yourself in that situation. What would you have been doing after 14 days lost at sea? Soaked, cold, exhausted, stressed, fatigued, sick, hopeless. You ever been there? This is just a small little example, but I remember flying a little in a little Cessna 206 out of our tribal location, and we were headed to town. We were looking forward to a vacation. As soon as we got out of our valley, we got stuck in a cloud bank, and it was a doozy of a storm, actually, and there was no way to go back, and so we had to keep going forward. And because we couldn't see anything, we climbed to 13,000 feet so we wouldn't hit any of the mountaintops. The kids fell asleep because of lack of oxygen. It was freezing cold. The rain was coming in through the cracks in the windows and the doors. We were wet. We couldn't see a thing around us. We were just in the fog, in the clouds. We couldn't see land or sky, just cloud, and it was frightening. It really was. We at least had an altimeter and a GPS, so we knew where we were headed, unlike Paul's shipmates, when you think of them. But that was one of the longest hours in my life. I was praying, but I don't know if I would have been much of a witness to somebody if they were in that same situation as I was. I was glad my kids were asleep so I didn't have to reassure them of something I wasn't too sure about myself. But you look at what Paul was doing in that situation. He is a witness in the worst of circumstances. Through providing a nourishing meal, we're going to look at these three points, through enduring a miraculous uh, swim, and through healing with his hands. So our first point is through a nourishing meal, verse 33 to 38. And I'm going to read this again. It's so interesting. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now I want you to notice that what Paul did. Paul acknowledged the situation. He urged them to eat. He reassured their hearts, and he acted upon his faith. So Paul acknowledges the situation. Paul, though he was spiritually minded, he did not minimize reality. He was not out of touch. He knew the gravity of their situation. He said, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food. I want you to think of that. 14 days without food. It's a long time. I don't think I could last that long. Some of you think I would be nothing. Um, but that was exhausting. Paul didn't minimize his situation. He didn't say, hey, what are you stressing out about? What is your problem? Pull it together, right? No, Paul acknowledged their exhaustion due to prolonged suspense and lack of food. And you know, God can use us in our trauma to minister to others living in the same trauma. Paul, a prisoner on the ship, was basically the one who held everyone together, ensuring that all of them would survive. He was a prisoner, the lowest on the totem pole. He was used by God, though. Paul was right there with them in the storm, living in suspense and not eating for 14 days. Paul had to live it in order 
for God to use him in it. Paul had to live it in order for God to use him in it. And I want you to think about that for a bit. Perhaps we should look at the storms in our lives as opportunities to witness of the saving power of Jesus instead of just a problem to get out of as soon as we can. And Paul urges them to eat. Now, sometimes we need to be reminded about the basics. Eat, sleep, rest. In the Old Testament, God encouraged Elijah with food and sleep and rest when he had been under prolonged stress and trauma for a long time as well. So God understands our humanness. He knows what we need. It is not beneath him to provide us with sleep and food. It is in God's nature to do so. Because he's a loving and compassionate God, he understands our weaknesses. And into that weakness, Paul spoke with a prophetic voice, telling the people to eat, for it would give them strength. Speaking the word of the Lord is not rocket science. It's speaking the truth in plain language so others can hear and be blessed. God in compassion used Paul's prophetic voice to assure their hearts. Paul assured their hearts. Paul reminded them of the promise he received from God back in verse 24. God had promised that not one person on the ship would die in the imminent shipwreck. So against all odds and contrary to what the circumstances would dictate, Paul believed God's word. And then Paul acted as if God's word were true and reliable because it is, right? And Paul did not hesitate. He did not waver. He did not doubt. Paul believed that God would act exactly as he promised he would do. This is faith in action. And this is action based on faith. Paul, through word and action, assured them of God's promise and God's character, bringing hope into a hopeless situation. And he urged them to eat, reminding them that not a hair on their heads would be lost. And then Paul acted upon his faith. So it says that Paul took bread, And he didn't just tell people what to do, he did it himself. As a Christian, it's so important to follow through on what you say, to do what you tell others to do, to live out the gospel of Jesus as you proclaim the gospel. If you are a witness, if you are telling others to repent and place their faith in Jesus, to have full confidence that he will do what he says he will do, then you had better be living your life in full confidence that God will do what he says he will do. Living in such a way that you believe that God, uh, what you believe about God is reflected in your walk. Your walk should follow your talk. And look how Paul did this. He says he took bread and then he gives thanks. Now, who does that? Right? Who stops in the middle of a storm, lost at sea, nothing to eat for 14 days, traumatized, stressed, sick, hopeless, and gives thanks to God for the bread that they had? God, thank you for this bread and for the fact that you are in control and that you have promised that none of us on this ship will die. Incredible faith. Think of the incredible witness that that was. Now, we don't know what Paul prayed, but it's not a stretch to think that he could have been a witness through his prayer. Maybe he prayed something like, God, thank you for sending Jesus who was the bread of life, his body broken for us. And when we trust in him for salvation, it is like we are taking bread and eating it to sustain our life. For Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh, Jesus said. John 6, 51. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that Paul did something like this. For look at how 
Luke describes his action, similar to Jesus at the Last Supper, taking bread, giving thanks, and then Paul took the bread and broke it. Paul didn't have to break the bread. He could have handed it out just as it was. And Luke didn't have to record that either. But Paul subtly demonstrated the gospel in the most basic action. He broke bread and gave it to them to eat. The action being a picture of Jesus' body being broken for us. And Paul began to eat it. He demonstrated his faith in God by eating the bread. When hope is lost, when it seems that there is no use living, when you see no way out, eating gets neglected. Humans do this. We lose hope and then we lose purpose in doing even the most basic of actions to sustain life. And it looks like Paul kind of broke the spell that was over everyone. He called them to believe in God's word, to hope in God's promise, and to act on their faith and hope by taking bread and eating it. It's an incredible act of faith. It's an incredible display of community as a whole ship ate together. It was a wonderful demonstration of the hope of the gospel in the middle of a hurricane. I love that picture. And it says that as a result of this act of eating together, all were encouraged. All 276 people who were on that ship, centurions and soldiers and sailors and shipmates and and captains and deck swabbers and merchants and prisoners, all of them were encouraged by the faith of one person, the prisoner, Paul. The witness. You know, circumstances didn't change. In fact, they still went through the shipwreck and had to swim for shore. But circumstances are not the object of our faith. God and his promises are the object of our faith. Their faith in God because of Paul's witness and testimony was so strong that they threw the rest of the wheat out into the sea. They trusted that God would have them survive even if they had nothing to eat from here on out. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Jesus has commanded and promised us that we will be a witness and testimony in the storms of life, pointing people to Jesus through the small acts of kindness and love, sharing a meal together, inviting others to be part of the community of believers, witnessing to them about the promises of God and the saving grace of Jesus. And these things are what God uses to draw people to himself. But in human terms, the worst was still yet to come for them. The passengers and the crew were still in for the shipwreck. So now we get to the the miracle swim, our second point, verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea and at the same time loosened the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. I want you to notice that the ship's crew were using some common sense and wisdom, right? They were doing the best that they could to get this ship safely to shore. But in the end, God is the one who's ultimately in control. 
But they saw a beach. They desired to run the ship aground on the beach. This could possibly have saved the ship. To do this, they cast off the anchors, which had been dragging behind them, uh, kind of as a rudder. It kept them going in a straight direction. They loosened the ropes that tied the rudders down. They, they hoisted the sails, and they made for land at the mercy of the wind. And God's the one who directs the wind, right? And they struck a reef. So the bow stick, stuck into the reef, and it remained immovable. And then the strong surf began to, to break up the back of the, the ship and break it apart. So slowly their options were being eliminated. Their plans were failing. They would have to swim for shore. No lifeboat. Remember, they cut that loose. No ship. It was broken apart. No flotation devices. They didn't have those back then. You ever been on the ocean on a reef during a strong and dangerous surf? Any of you ever been on, on a reef in a strong surf? Yeah, it's, uh, it's frightening. And the, and, and the reef can be very sharp, dangerous. The surf is overpowering. It can be overwhelming. It, it'll just throw you anywhere. And also there's back currents that can take you back out to sea. It's a very scary place to be. But God, in the midst of that, fulfilled his promise to keep everyone alive. That's kind of miraculous. Even though the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, no prisoner was killed, verse 43. It was because of Paul that the prisoners uh, were not killed. They either had to kill them all or none of them. And, and the centurion liked Paul. He's a good guy. He, had kept, he saw how influential he had been to the morale and the safety of the entire ship. So he didn't want Paul dead or they might all die. And so they were all saved, all the prisoners. And even though they had to jump overboard, over a reef, in a strong surf, no one died in the water, verse 44. All 267 people swam, floated, uh, surfed, tumbled, body surfed, whatever it was, their way to land, and they got to shore safely. All were brought to land. God had fulfilled his promise. And that's a lot of people to make it to shore without anyone getting hurt over a reef and in strong current of water. I want you to notice how God's salvation played out in this scenario. The people trusted that God would save them and that none of them would die. They believed in his promises and took hope in his spoken word. But they all had to swim for shore. They had to jump in the water and trust that he would take them safely to shore. There was a point in time when they had to jump out of the boat and act upon their faith. They had to take the risk that in spite of the dangers against all odds, God would come through and save them from the surf and from the reef. And he did. The truth of the matter is, when we take the leap of faith, trusting in the promises of God, God is utterly faithful to fulfill his promises. God is trustworthy. We aren't, but he is. His word is entirely true. You can bet your life on it. When God said, everyone will come to shore and no one will die, he meant precisely that. No one died. Everyone made it to shore. For us, God's word says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God meant that when he said it. Even if you think it's too good to be true or it's impossible because of your situation, God said it and he'll do it. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And Jesus meant precisely that. You will be his witnesses. Jesus' statement is a promise and a command. His word is utterly trustworthy. And this is what we witness about, the trustworthiness of God. 
God saves those who repent and believe in Jesus as their Savior. When we believe, God does exactly as he said. He saves us. He gives us eternity in heaven, part of his family. He promises that we will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so we jump in the water and declare the praises of him whose word is entirely true. We witness to the world about the word of God upon whom we can risk our life. For it really isn't a risk after all because God never fails. He never fails. Brings us to our final point. Chapter 28, verse 1. The healing hand. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, He was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to a chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they also honored us greatly, and when they, uh, we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So we see that uh, Paul swam, Paul served, Paul prayed. So Paul swam. He, like the author, uh, Luke, the author, actually writes that we all were brought safely through. So Luke was with them. He swam too. Every one of the people swam for sure. Paul was one of them. Luke was one of them. God miraculously saved their lives, but he did not miraculously lift them above the stormy waters and, and then just drop them on the shore. God brought them through the flood as they swam in the center of his providence. Just because God promises to save us, it doesn't mean that we will be free from danger or risk or suffering. Suffering is part of the journey. It's part of life. It's part of God's plan. It's a necessary part of God's plan. And so they all made it to shore, swimming and tumbling. And then they got to shore and the natives were kind and they kindled a fire. You know, there's nothing more comforting than climbing out of the water, bone-drenched, tired and hungry, cold, and you see a fire crackling on the shore, right? There's nothing more healing than being welcomed out of the rain and into a warm and dry shelter heated by a natural flame. God uses everyday natural things to demonstrate his faithfulness to us and to encourage our souls. So we see that Paul swam and, and they all got to shore and we see that Paul served. You look at him, he's, he's gathering sticks. Now remember, Paul wasn't a spring chicken. He was kind of up there in years. He had just lived through 14 days of hunger and stress and prolonged trauma, wet, cold fatigue and seasickness. And, and what's he doing? He's serving. Paul is witnessing through his lifestyle. Paul was gathering sticks. Who does that? Followers of Jesus do that. Do you have a heart like that? 
After you've been beaten and imprisoned and mistreated and then endured a storm and sickness and tragedy, would you serve the very people that put you in that situation? Or would you say, enough is enough. I've had it with this God. I'm done with being nice. I'm done being the sole prophet of hope. Paul had spent 14 days lost at sea and just finished swimming to shore, and yet he had a heart of service. Ironically, though, Paul, the trials for Paul just continued and continued. It was still raining. It was cold. He was picking up sticks in the rain. And then to top it off, he gets bit by a snake. Like, really, God? Is this really what you're going to do? You're going to save me from the storm just to kill me on the shore by a snake bite. And I was doing your will. I I, I gave hope to the people on the ship. I was serving you. I was picking up sticks in the rain. I can't catch a break. It's just one trauma after another that never lets up. I can't handle it anymore. Been there? But Paul, he simply shook the snake off and went on collecting sticks, unafraid, undiscouraged, and undaunted. And the natives were just waiting to see what was going to happen to him, right? They're like, justice has not allowed him to live. Like, he he's, must be a bad man. He somehow made it through this, but he's a murderer, of course. And so they're thinking evil of Paul. On top of all of it, they're thinking evil, the worst of who Paul was. But Paul just kept on serving, kept on witnessing through what he did, kept on keeping the faith, kept on following the way of Jesus. And nothing happened to him. He brought the sticks to the pile, took his seat down by the fire, begins to warm himself. The natives are waiting for him to fall over dead or to, to swell up or, or to seize or something like that. Nothing happened. He remained well. And then they start to assume something different of him, which I believe, and Luke doesn't go into it, but I believe Paul used that as an opportunity to be even a greater witness for Jesus. But that wasn't all, because that wasn't all that Paul did. He didn't just sit down by the fire. He then begins to heal people. So it seems that there was a chief on the island whose name was Publius. He received, it seems, the whole crew and entertained them hospitably. I just want to stop here for a second. It's, that's quite a relief effort. A small island community, most likely subsistence farmers, taking over 250 people and feeding them, housing them, and caring for them. Now I've learned a lot about hospitality uh, from living in and uh, visiting small villages uh, throughout the world, when, uh, whether in Papua New Guinea or Uganda or South Sudan or places in between. It never ceases to amaze me how people who have absolutely nothing in comparison to us are not only willing, but they insist upon feeding you and caring for you. Years ago, I was in South Sudan, and the Christians there were being hunted by Muslims. They were enduring a drought. Their crops were minimal. They, could, they had no money. And, and we were there to see how our church could come alongside them. And in that context, they brought us into their village, and they fed us. And they fed us with the best that they had. It wasn't much, but it was all that they had. Super generous. In New Guinea, we would enter new villages and, and the villagers would run out into the gardens. They would grab as much food as they could from their gardens. They'd cook it up and they would give it to us as soon as it was finished, hot and piping hot. They gave us more food than we could ever eat. In Uganda, where we just visited, the Christian community there put out a spread of food that was incredibly generous. Uh, the people who live there are under constant threat of being killed by Muslims, but yet they welcomed us with kindness and with love and with generosity. 
The world over, people show love and hospitality by sharing food, by having meals together, by taking care of this basic need. In verse 1 of 28, Luke describes these people as barbarians or pagans. They were unsaved. They were viewed by outside world as rude and brutal, and they did not understand or speak Greek, the language of the world. And yet these rude, brutal people showered over 250 people with kindness for an extended period of time. I think we as Christians in the West can learn from this example. When people are in trouble, when they are in distress, when people visit from afar, when they enter our community and are introduced and we're introduced to their need, we as Christians should be the first to show hospitality, to feed them in the name of Jesus. But back to Paul, he was, so uh, Paul was informed uh, that Publius' father lay sick with fever and dysentery. And here we find Paul again when he could have been recouping, relaxing by the fire. Instead, he's still being a witness. Paul went and visited the father-in-law. You know, Paul didn't have to do this. He was a prisoner. Uh, after all, Paul made arrangements. He went and visited the father-in-law. Paul sat down and he put his hands on him. Paul touched this man who, according to Jewish law and custom, would have been considered unclean. He was both a Gentile and he had dysentery. But Paul didn't care. He, he laid his hands upon him and he prayed for him. Paul didn't socially distance himself from the diseased. He went into his presence as a witness of the life-changing power of Jesus. Paul was a witness. He prayed to the God of heaven in the name of Jesus. Paul and the apostles always prayed and always healed in the name of Jesus. So we know that he was being a witness for Jesus in this context. And he healed him. He's such an incredible man of God. He loved these barbarians. He served those less fortunate than him. He witnessed about Jesus to the lost in word and in deed. And as a result, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases went home and were cured. Paul didn't just heal the converted. Paul healed them indiscriminately. The love of Jesus is for everyone. It extends to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It is available to the healthy and to the sick, to the rich and to the poor, to the pagan and the religious, to the old and to the young, to the male and the female, to the powerful and to the weak. The message of God's forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest news of all time, and it's for everybody. It's the only news that people really need to hear. And so we need to tell them. In Romans 10, Paul wrote, How then will they hear on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear of some, or without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We are witnesses to the word of Christ. You see, God used this storm at sea, the shipwreck, the traumatic circumstances to bring his faithful witness, Paul, to the shores of this unreached people group to the ends of the earth, so to speak. It's not too much of a stretch to assume that God used Paul, the healings that he did, and his witness concerning the gospel of Jesus to establish the first church on Malta. I kind of looked online and there are lots of church buildings on Malta and they kind of attribute the church starting on Malta to Paul's shipwreck. Luke doesn't record the response of the people to the gospel of Jesus, but he does give us some clues that they placed their faith in Jesus. It says that they were healed by Paul. Now, Paul could, have, could only heal in the name of Jesus. That's the, that's the power by which he healed. So all these islanders had to be introduced to Jesus. Who he was, 
what he did, why his name was so powerful. And I'm sure some of them placed their faith in Jesus. It says that they bestowed honors upon Paul and his companions. This refers to bestowing dignity and honor and financial assistance upon them. In other words, the people were appreciative of Paul. They honored him and his position, and they showered him and his companions with generosity. It makes me think that they had to have some kind of faith in God to do that. And they supplied all that they needed for the remainder of the voyage. Now, regardless of whether Paul was able to establish a church on Malta or not, what is true is that he was a witness for Jesus to those who had never heard. He never wasted an opportunity. Paul didn't let his circumstances get him down or discourage him from the calling that God had placed upon his life. He knew that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul never once doubted God's plan or God's providence or God's salvation throughout this entire episode. Many of us would have. Given the circumstances, it would only seem reasonable to wonder what God was up to and it would be understandable to doubt God. But Paul didn't. My desire is for us to have a hearty faith like Paul did. Faith that doesn't doubt God even in the worst of storms. Faith that doesn't give up believing in God's salvation. Doesn't forget God's providence. Doesn't worry about God's plan. May we have faith in God like Paul that says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now, some of us may be called to go to the ends of the earth. Kelly and I were for a time. The mountain range that we lived in was called the Finisteers. It means the ends of the earth, right? We literally went that far, right? And if you're called by God to go that far, then go in faith and in confidence in God's providential plan. Go be witnesses of Jesus to those who have never heard. But not all of us are called to go to the ends of the earth or to Uganda or to South America or wherever. Some of us are called to stay here and be a witness in the place where God has put us. He put you here in southeast Wisconsin for a purpose. And that purpose is to live for him and witness about Jesus to those that are around you. God wants you to live a life of faith, trusting in the promises of God, having full confidence in God's saving grace, and courageously sharing the good news of Jesus with those around you. So my encouragement is to live into God's purpose for you. Go. Go out these doors and be witnesses of Jesus to the lost who surround you in your community, in your neighborhoods, at the park, in the store, at the restaurant, in your family, at your school, in the place of employment. Everyone needs to hear the message of Jesus. And so go offering physical food and spiritual food to the hungry in the name of Jesus. Go swim through the storms of life with those who are dying and be witnesses as you are with them in the storm. Go to the sick and to the injured and share the healing power of Jesus' love with them. Be his witnesses wherever you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Paul. We know that he did not do any of this through his own power. Your Holy Spirit filled him, motivated him, empowered him, encouraged him, and he was able to be a powerful witness in some of the most crazy circumstances that anyone could have been in. And you used him to encourage all those on the ship and to bring the gospel to an unreached people group on the island of Malta. 
And God, we know that you can do that in our lives too. We know that your spirit lives within us and you've promised that we will be your witnesses. So God, strengthen us, empower us, embolden us to share this good news with everyone we come in contact with because it really is the greatest news. We look around at what's going on around us and the hopelessness and the fear and the chaos. Your message of peace and hope, joy, and the, the assurance of having eternal life with you in heaven is so, so wonderful. Thank you for that. Help us to share that with others. God, you want more people to come into faith with you. We know you do. You desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God, use us to be your witnesses. Thank you for each one here. Thank you that you are working in their lives and in their hearts. Continue to do your work. May you complete the work that you began in us for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Here's the benediction. May the ends of the earth sing songs of praise and of glory to the righteous one, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.